Hello, and welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? The podcast where we try to answer the question, where do you know them from? This season, we are asking that question about Tessa Thompson. As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And oh my god, today is maybe our least favorite movie ever. Yeah. It's up there with Annette. I have never hated. Actually, you know what? We're going to get there. I'll just dive right in. I'll shortly reveal my feelings to you all. Starting off strong with two stars. Sucked. (laughs) That's it. That's the whole review. Sucked exclamation point. Short and sweet. Yep. Then we have a slightly longer one. 1.5 stars. Losing my mind that in all the talk about whether or not Jada Pickett Smith and Will Smith were in an open relationship, it wasn't talking about the point that 10 years prior, the couple wrote and directed and produced a movie about letting go of preconceived notions and accepting that open relationships can be healthy and good. I have so much to say about this review. Oh boy. First, that it portrays open relationships as healthy or good. It does not. And also the rest of it, I guess I agree with. It's very silly. I love that this reviewer clearly watched the movie after Jada Pinkett Smith's memoir came out, which means that they watched this movie not when it came out, which is bizarre. Importantly, this movie has a surprisingly small amount of reviews on Letterboxd. And then there were no other funny ones. So I included my own Letterboxd review, which is half a star, 50 shades of gray for men with mommy issues. And you know what? I included my own review because one, I am hilarious. And two, I have never, ever given a movie half a star, which, by the way, is the lowest rating you can give it on Letterboxd and still give it a rating. I have only ever given one movie besides this one half a star, and that was Triangle of Sadness, which is to date my least favorite movie ever. So as you can tell, I really hated this film. What did you rate Blonde? That it was higher than both of these? I gave Blonde one star. I would rather watch Blonde than either of these movies. (laughs) This is my portrait of the artist as a young man. Shout out, Ashley. I truly, truly hated this film and everything that encompassed it. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I was so sleepy and it was between me and sleep. (laughs) This movie was pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I the whole time I was watching this movie, I was actively hoping never to think about it ever again, despite knowing that I would have to record this podcast. Yeah. We're actually being so brave right now. Yeah. You guys are really getting content under duress. So this movie was The Human Contract, and I know what you're thinking. That's a boring name. It is, and it doesn't get better from there. This movie came out in 2008. It was directed and screenwritten by Jada Pinkett Smith. This was her directorial and screenwriting debut. It was edited by Michael Trent. The cinematography is by Darren Janae. It is 107 minutes long. Each one of those minutes was individually tortured, except for the shining 30 seconds that Tessa Thompson was on screen. Yeah. Or less, possibly 10 seconds. The major actors include Jason Clark, who plays Julian Wright. Jason Clark, you guys may know from being a villain in every movie he's ever been in. Um, despite being the romantic lead, he is once again the villain here. You may know him from such notable films as Pet Cemetery, Planet of the Apes, Zero Dark Thirty, White House Down, which is probably where he met Will Smith. Or most recently, Oppenheimer, where he plays the mean man prosecuting Oppenheimer. So lots of villainous situations from him. You may not recognize him from Planet of the Apes as he plays an ape in that movie. So not exactly facial recognition. (laughs) Yeah, he plays the bad guy in every movie ever. He has a very deeply villainous face. He looks like if you made a movie about Christopher Nolan, he would play Christopher Nolan. Like, they yeah. just look so, so... Also, Quentin Tarantino. Like, he just looks like yeah. every, like, kind of 
kind of hmm white guy I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know. We're being so mean about this man's face, but what we should be mean <laughs> about is his acting. He has a very pinched feature. He's a great actor. I don't know what you're talking about. He has in, very in small this movie. pinched features, and that makes him look villainous. Yeah. I also he thought he was very good at being movie. a villain. I know that that's okay. a hot take over you. But we can talk about it more once you read all the credits. The other romantic lead was Paz Vega, who plays Michael. Michael is never given a last name. At one point, there's a discussion in which Julian says, Michael, interesting name for a woman. And she said, oh, there's a whole story about that. And then never tells him the story. Yep. Then we never learn it. That's fine. Yeah. The rest of the cast is pretty famous, despite having almost nothing roles like Idris Elba. I guess they don't have nothing roles. Idris Elba is in this movie. Mm-hmm. He plays Larry, Julian's co-worker who is versed in every type of law. Yeah, he plays the lawyer that works at Julian's company. Their Ted whole Danson. legal team is just Idris Elba. <laughs> yeah, he just knows all the types of law. Ted Danson is their boss, EJ Winters. Hell yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith is inexplicably Julian's sister. For those yeah. of you who don't know what Jason Clark looks like, he is white and Jada Pinkett Smith is black. It is never explained how they are siblings. I have to assume that his mom had a second husband, although that is never explained and their dad is never featured in the movie. She could also be adopted. Their dad yeah. is not in the movie. Or he could be adopted, I suppose. Whatever. Anything anyway, could be possible. That's his sister. This is not the biggest problem with this film. No. Also in the movie are Stephen Brand, Titus Welliver, and Joanna Cassidy. Fun fact about Joanna Cassidy is that she is actually in our favorite movie of all time, Bullet. My God. (laughs) One day I'm going to watch Bullet and I'm going to think it's the greatest film ever made and I'm going to have to issue like a mass redaction of everything I've said on this podcast, but there's almost no chance I like that movie. So one day we could both watch it. You may notice that I have not yet listed Tessa Thompson, and that is because I think that she is, if possible, the smallest role in the movie. She is billed as waitress, which is interesting because she is not a waitress, which I think sheds light on how minimal her role is. She's a receptionist at Michael's company, and the only speaking parts she has, the only part on screen she has is Julian shows up to Michael's business, sees Tessa, says, is Michael in? Does Michael work here? (laughs) And Tessa says, no sorry she's out of town and then he pushes and she's like yeah she's actually through here so what i'm saying is that tessa is a terrible receptionist because she just does not gatekeep her her boss's time at all maybe she actually really hates michael listen what we really need is more fleshing out of tessa thompson's character why does she work there what is her motivation for being a terrible receptionist these kinds of questions yeah i have to assume that if she works for michael Michael's terrible boss because Michael has a lot of priorities that are not going to work ever. Yeah, I don't even know what Michael does. Something with art. She seems Allegedly. to like procure art professionally. So those are your major actors. The score is by the Graves Brothers and Anthony Marinelli. And it was produced by a lot of people. So buckle in. Don Thomas, Miguel Melendez, Mike Jackson, David Dienberg, David Grasso, David Copeland. You may have noticed that that is three Davids in a row. James Lasseter, and Will Smith. Unsurprisingly, since his wife both wrote and directed this one and starred in it. Not starred, but she was in it. It was distributed by Overbrook Entertainment, which was founded and continues to be owned by Will Smith. And the plot is one sentence. A free-spirited woman, 
leads a businessman down a path of reckless abandon. There's a whole sure. verb in there. Subject, verb. That's yeah. it. That's all you need, right? The, For a sentence, a subject, yeah. verb. The tagline is bound by desire. Disgusting. Which I thought was funny. Oh yeah, my God. That doesn't make, I could not tell you for the life of me why this movie is called The Human Contract. At one point, they have a conversation and she is decrying marriage, basically, even though she is married and saying things like, we don't need to form a contract between ourselves. Dumb. We can just love each other. That idea isn't dumb. That's a dumb reason to call the movie The Human Contract, but that's okay. Yeah, I agree. Other people agree with you, too. You know what? I don't think this is a movie about marriage, but we can talk about that later. This movie was received terribly. It has a 2.9 on Letterboxd, no Metacritic rating, no tomato meter rating, and a 26% from the Rotten Tomatoes audience, which is criminally low. Not criminally low. It is very low. Usually the Rotten Tomatoes audience is at least above 30. That's crazy. I don't know that I've ever seen a Rotten Tomatoes audience score that low. Yeah. Definitely you've seen a Metacritic score that low. One other interesting thing production-wise, to harken back to Elizabeth's second Letterboxd review about this being an early clue that the Smith family had an open or an untraditional marriage, is that in the graveyard scene, at one point Michael goes to see the original Frankenstein movie in a graveyard and Julian stalks her there. This is later played off as very cute. But in the graveyard scene, there is a grave marked Machiavelli and dated 1971 to 1996. This is supposed to be a tribute to Tupac, who started going by Machiavelli or who called himself Machiavelli after his stint in prison when he read The Prince. And those are the years of his life. Did you just call him Tupac? Tupac? (laughs) It's Tupac. That's amazing. Oh my God. I'm so obsessed. Anyway, that's a hilarious production fact. I personally think everyone should start hiding tributes to Tupac in their movies, mostly because it just feels so off base and unrelated. I'm sure that probably my ex-boyfriend will listen to this and tell me why I'm wrong. And Tupac is actually deeply connected to the plot of this movie, but I'll just wait for that text independently. (laughs) Well, no, the reason is that Jada Pinkett Smith and Tupac are like childhood friends or were childhood friends. Allegedly. They knew each other their entire lives. And Jada Pinkett Smith in her memoir, which I've not read, so I'm basing this entirely off of CNN's review of the book. (laughs) Jada Pinkett Smith said in her memoir that Tupac is the love of her life. Oh, my God. That's very interesting. Imagine being Will Smith and knowing that Tupac is the love of your wife's life. Yes. That's crazy. That's going to be like when I get married and I have to tell everyone that Alexandra is the love of my life. So true. I know. That's crazy. Crazy bonkers bananas. I'm sorry. I still can't believe you called him Tupac. <laughs> okay. I definitely knew it was Tupac. Everyone knows it's Tupac. That's why this is hilarious. Anyway, it's late, you guys. We do this late at night because we have jobs. Anyway, the plot summary that I gave you was terrible. If, it, if possible, our least detailed one ever. So let's take a real crack at it. We encounter this man named Julian at a bar. He is hitting on Michael. He's waiting for his date, Brenda, to show up. So when Brenda shows up, Michael leaves and he does not get her number or anything. Later, he sees her in the street and follows her. This is when he follows her to Frankenstein. And I guess they really hit it off because after they watch Frankenstein, they go back to his place. She finds out that he's a photographer and she's like, oh, wow, photograph me like one of your French girls, basically, and like takes off all of her clothes really, really fast. And he does not take pictures of her. He takes pictures only of her belly button. 
so they don't have sex at that point, although she is in lingerie, some lingerie that is entirely inappropriate for watching Frankenstein. So she leaves and then she calls him or emails him or something. They have a little meetup in a parking lot and she picks him up in her limo, which is being driven by someone else. So he sits down. She starts seducing him and like blindfolds him and handcuffs him, etc. And then is videoing him having sex with another woman, which he does not know is happening. Then he gets really mad. They have car sex and then they start seeing each other. I think at some point he finds out that she is married because he gets really possessive really fast. And she is like, I'm not cheating. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a liar. I have an arrangement with my husband. We have this open marriage. And he does not take this very well, mostly because he wants to possess her. Julian is very possessive. And she does not love that he's hiding things from her, like his dark room. She wants to go in there. This is a plot point, but never becomes really relevant at all. Other plot things. I'm just going to finish the Michael plot. We'll circle back to other things that were also happening. At one point, Michael shows up at his apartment because he has been ignoring her calls after he followed her to her house one time. And he was like, Michael, I need you right now. And she was like, I'm literally having dinner with my husband. Can I call you back tomorrow? And he was like, no, I need you right now. And then she saw him outside of her window. So anyway, he was ignoring her calls for a couple of days. She shows up at his house and she's like, are you good? I thought we were fine and that you were okay with having an open relationship. And he is really aggro and rips down her sleeve to show the self-harm scars that she has in her arm that he learned about when he was photographing her like one of his French girls in the first scene. Then because that was really rude, she slaps him. And in a completely unproportional response, he like puts her through a table. So she is very busted up. She then stabs herself in the leg with like a pen, something. They go to the hospital. She looks dead the whole time. I thought she was dead, but they go to the hospital and her husband shows up and is like, never speak to her again. And then Julian goes to her house and tries to speak to her again. And the husband just lets him like not a lot of resistance is put up at the same time. As if that plot is not crazy enough. We are also dealing with Julian's mommy issues and his sister's love life and his company. So we learn at the beginning of the movie that Julian's company, they are having a big meeting to sell it and he has to portray American values. And so what they mean by portray American values is he can't get divorced from his wife. So their plot is like a Hallmark business movie plot. They have to put together a big presentation for the next three weeks to defeat the rival company. We barely ever see them preparing for this. The only preparation that they do for this is managing his American values presentation. So that is one plot. That's another of the subplots. Another one is that he keeps going over to his mom's house and his mom is off in some manner. I can't tell if his mom is off or if she is just always tired when he comes over at night. But we learn progressively throughout the movie that his mom tried to kill herself when he was a child and that he saved her and she does not remember that this happened. So there's some trauma there. I think she does remember that it happened. I think she's like willfully ignorant. She made him lie about it. And then she's just never acknowledged that what he's been saying for years is a lie. So like, I think she knows Mm. that it is a lie, but she has been gaslighting everyone so long that she started to gaslight herself. Excellent point. Okay. Our final subplot is that his sister, Rita, is in an abusive marriage and she leaves her husband to come live with the mom. And then the husband shows up, Julian drives over and is trying to remove him from the situation and Rita encourages him to kill him. Yeah. She encourages Julian to kill her husband, Tony. And then Julian does, like he hits him in the head with a brick and somehow Tony does not die. This is now, you may have noticed Julian's second attempt to kill someone without killing them. 
then Rita is going to get back with Tony and there's a whole thing. So anyway, yeah, it's a very complex movie. A lot of things are happening. None of yeah, them are happening Yeah, and also well. almost none of those subplots get resolved. Even though Julian beats the crap out of Tony and Tony doesn't die, so we know that he's not going to like press charges and win a criminal case against Julian. His sister doesn't get out of that bad marriage. In fact, his mother encourages her to stay in it and be there for her husband, which is super fucking whack. And then also he kind of makes up with Michael at the end because he like gives her the key to the dark room and they're suddenly fine, except that he still almost killed her and beat the shit out of her. And that's not okay or allowed. And her husband hates him. So like they're not going to be able to be in their weird secondary relationship. So that's kind of super fucking whack. He kind of, I think the most, the closest we get to resolution is that he resolves the conflict with his mom by simply confronting her. And then she gets really upset and he's like, oh, well, now I know the truth. And he paints the room that she asks him to paint at the beginning of the movie. But that's not even a really satisfying conclusion. So I don't know. I just didn't understand why there were so many conflicts and why... All of the conflicts were not resolved at the end. For much of the movie, I thought that Rita was his ex-wife because you never meet his ex-wife or hear anything about her. There's the whole you can't get divorced, but that's not really a problem because it seems like they're happily separated. So like, who cares? I guess I could see someone saying like, oh, the number of conflicts and the way that he doesn't handle any of them well shows that he's human. But no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I have never seen a character behave less human in my entire life. Everything about this man is reading. It is his first day on the planet. The way that he moves through the space is so uncomfortable. It's just so awkward. I can't even. Every yeah. time he was on screen, I was like, please remove yourself yeah. from the situation. The whole time I was seeing him, there's so many levels to this man. First of all, he's a Virgo, which Elizabeth. <laughs> yes. Made a he great is a Virgo man. About. But he also has a lot of issues like he's very conservative when he's on his little date with Brenda, the first lady that he has sex with. He says, like, you can't believe what's on the news. And I was like, this feels like a weird thing to include in this sex movie. He's super possessive. He has deep, deep anger issues, mommy issues, violence issues. The man needs to go to therapy Literally, is what I'm saying. Like, really, really needs to go to therapy. I was thoroughly terrified, like, to my core of this man. And at first I was like, oh, bet that's the point. Like the point is going to be men are scary and open relationships expose you to sexual violence, which I don't love as a theme, but I was like, I guess I can get behind it. But that was definitely not the theme. The theme was supposed to be like embracing passion and uncertainty. But this guy was a huge fucking creep and he was so weird and aggressive and like immediately violent in any situation where anything went wrong. Like... I would not feel safe around him. And yet he's supposed to be the hero. Like in that situation with Rita, mm -hmm. when he finds out that like this guy is back at her house threatening her and her children, he immediately goes over there and makes it worse by meeting violence with more violence. And I'm not saying that in that situation, like, because Tony was coming in with a lot of aggressive energy. So I understand the need to like, meet violence with violence to stop it it's that he takes it the next step further and he smashes that man with a brick that was intention to kill mm -hmm. that is fucked up because tony is not there with a weapon he's trying to get his yeah. kids back which does not condone his behavior because definitely tony should not have been doing that but there's a whole meeting about it afterward at the american values committee yeah. where everyone is saying like did you really need yeah to and idris elba is like dude you didn't need to try to kill that guy so i just 
definitely other people in the movie recognize that he is not the hero. He is super problematized. So then I was like, okay, this is going to be like an American psycho thing. He's going to get what Mm -hmm. he wants for most of the movie. And then it's going to get really dark and he's going to like try to kill someone. And then that does happen, but he gets away with it and she's fine. And they're friends again at the end of the movie. And like, that doesn't make any sense. What is this movie trying to say? Yeah. Also the entire movie. So I've mentioned Brenda. They go home, they go to his house and they have sex. And then immediately after (laughs) they have sex, he throws up. And I just have to think, damn, that must suck for Brenda. Like the sex was so bad that he threw up. But he immediately then leaves that situation and goes and punches a mirror. And for the rest of the movie, his hand is all wrapped up because he has an open wound that he never goes to the doctor about. And it's just kind of like a visual reminder for you the entire movie that this man is deeply violent. His first reaction to everything is violence. It's like fight club levels of fucked up. I want it to be satire so bad. That's how intense it is. At first, I thought that it was going to be, at first, I thought that he was going to be a villain because in one of the very first scenes when he is at home, he pulls out his divorce petition that his wife has sent him and his hand is bleeding at this point from punching the mirror and he like flicks his hand blood all over the divorce petition and then takes a picture of it. And I was like, is he going to try and frame his wife as abusive and like do something like that but no it's never relevant he just takes a picture because he's really into photography for whatever reason a reason that is never relevant i unfortunately think that the photography is relevant i think that the photography is worth noting because he takes pictures of these really like horrible terrible no good very bad things (laughs) that are happening in the world like people who have recently been beaten up or like are in the hospital or are like near death essentially This all stems from when his mom tried to put her head in the oven and he took a picture of her passed out on the floor, presumably before he called the cops, but whatever. And so, like, he definitely has this fascination with bad things or, like, maybe he has, like, some sort of savior complex where he likes to, like, sit on the precipice of, I saw them while they were doing badly and then I, like, you know, helped them not do so badly or, like, I saved them from death. It's really fucked up and weird and it's definitely a theme, but I just haven't fully unpacked it. I think that... Part of the many facets of his personality are kind of rooted in the fact that he is deeply obsessive. Like he has really bad anger issues, most of which are centered on like when someone messes with his stuff, like when Tony messes with his sister Rita or like when his mom messes with herself or like when Michael threatens to take herself away from him when she says, I will not be kept by anybody. That's when he gets mad. And I think that that also plays out in his businessman side. He works incredibly long hours. He's a super lame loser who does work on Friday nights. Unlike the rest of his coworkers, he like wakes up at 530 because he's a busy businessman who only cares about business and he has to go on his little run and eat his gruel because he eats food for fuel. And that also is underscored kind of by his aggressively modern, completely undecorated apartment. There's a sort of montage time sequence shot where he is working on his computer shirtless all day and Michael is just kind of buzzing around him, putting in decorations like a lamp things that are not gray and it's like adding a woman's touch but also just adding someone's touch who is not him i think is more important yeah yeah i like your american psycho read i definitely also wish that this had been a satire or had been i think what i wanted from this movie was for it to seem more intentional yeah you know like a satire yeah, does. every part of it was a little unfinished i think that any of these plot lines independently would have been really good The problem is there are just too many going on here. 
it feels like maybe that's intentional to reflect that real life is crazy. If this movie really is about marriage, which I don't think that it is, (laughs) the idea that you're not just your marriage, like other things are going on around you and outside of you that you can't control and that your partner can't control. It just felt really messy for me. And I feel like those parts could have been executed a little bit better. I think that Julian as a character is fascinating and tragically underexplored in a movie that is about him. He has all of these like very stereotypical, I googled what Virgo men are supposed to be like, because at some point, the great value Selma Hayek asks him when he was born and he says whatever day probably september 25th and then she says oh a virgo and he's like yeah i'm a virgo he's very proud of this fact and virgo men are supposed to be analytical patient perfectionists humanitarians impressive materialistic they find it hard to adapt and they can also be fussy hardworking, loyal and overthinking and i feel like he perhaps encapsulates all of the negative qualities of a virgo man i totally agree with you It definitely does feel like any one of these individual plots would have been more interesting. I think that even the business plot where he is trying to sell American values would have been more interesting. Like to watch someone who is going through a separation and who has anger issues trying to portray a perfect face. It wouldn't have been like a super original movie because I think we've probably seen a movie that is that before. But it would have been more interesting than whatever we got where the plots were all confused. Definitely. I just feel like maybe they needed to condense some of the plots. I feel like his mommy issues didn't need to be included since I think he already had a fairly well-established anger issues. The sister plot, the whole time I was like, what is this other than another example of him being violent unnecessarily? Definitely the sister plot did not need to happen at all. The business plot just seemed as a venue to give him friends. I feel like the business plot just characterizes him. But also if this movie had just been the plot with Michael, I would not have liked it. Yeah, I feel, well, I didn't like it to begin with, so... I wanted to talk to you a little bit more since we've kind of been ragging on Julian and how whack he is. What did you think of Michael? I also did not care for Michael, but I think I just don't understand how this movie was written by a woman because (laughs) I just feel like everything is weird about Michael. First and most importantly, that her favorite movie is Frankenstein. That is no one's favorite movie. That has not been anyone's favorite movie the original Frankenstein too. Yes, since 1936, it has not been anyone's favorite movie, but whatever. Next, I think the self-harm plotline is interesting. I don't think that it was well utilized. I think that both of them having trauma is like important representation, but I feel like it's underutilized in the script. So it just reads like both of these people have tragic pasts and that's why they can't be in a traditional marriage. And I don't like that. I think that's counter to Jada Pickett-Smith's point, unless she is secretly anti-open relationship. I think also, like, Michael's self-harm story gives her a mommy issue. Like, she started self-harming because of her mother. Yeah. And so when she tells Julian that, it could be like a bonding because he's like, oh my god, my mom fucked me up too. And as we've said before, you can't have two people with mommy issues. You have to have one person with mommy issues and one person with daddy issues. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So true. So yeah, I just, I didn't love Michael. I felt like she was not, she was compelling in that she's like mysterious and she has a very strong moral code and is confident in who she is. But I didn't at all like her relationship with Julian. And I thought that both of them were so, so bad for each other the whole time. I was like, please, I'm begging you to find anyone else. Plus, further to the self-harm thing. So when he's thrown her through a table 
and she is on the floor beaten up, beaten to shit. And then she finds this random pen, which we did not see before, and stabs herself in what seems to be ephemeral artery because it instantly makes her grow ashen, although it's not spurting, so it can't actually be an artery. What was that? Why'd she do that? Yeah. I she was already hurt. Understand that at all. I also did not watch much of that scene as it gave me the heebie-jeebies, so I just kind of watched her be ashen for that part. I did not like her at all. That was yucky. That was yucky, gross, bad. Well, here's the thing. Their whole dynamic, and this is going to be so interesting to say out loud, their whole dynamic is giving me Coriolanus Snow and Lucy Graybeard from the Hunger Games prequel, for those of you who are not chronically online. Just because he is, like, so traditional and conservative and, like, really obsessed with the power dynamic of a relationship, and she is so non-traditional not shackled to power dynamics and like exploratory free-spirited kind of thing i feel like this story is very similarly to the hunger games prequel this story is very much like one man's fall from grace or like how a quest for power can drive you crazy and make you do really bad things but it feels like the resolution to each of them is dramatically different It feels like there are a lot of examples of that in film and in literature where there is one guy who is deeply invested in a traditional or conservative way of thinking meets a free-spirited woman who is like liberated and like knows herself and her worth and is trying to lead him down this path towards feeling the same way about himself. And I would be interested, one, if there was ever a gender-swapped version of that where it's a free-spirited man meets a tight-laced woman that's not a Hallmark movie. And why also, are you like, discounting is... Hallmark movies like that? Because they're usually like busy businesswoman moves back home and discovers the magic of Christmas. There's definitely a gender swapped version of this. Most typically when Harry met Sally, she is like very straight laced and rigid and he is very nothing matters. We're all going to die. Michael definitely seems like her role in the movie is to philosophize. Like she has most of the good quotes at the very beginning when he asks her, what do you do? She says what I want. And she has that long quote about like not being a liar or an adulterer. And she says like, what is right? People live right every day and they still are not happy. We get to decide what is right for us. If you make my life better and I make your life better, what is wrong about that? So she's definitely like there to push his buttons and make him think. And I don't think that he succeeds at thinking because all he thinks is, oh, hot girl has boobs. I should, I should fuck her when he is reminded that she has a husband it always sets him off like when he sees boyd at the art show it sets him off and he gets angry and he leaves when confronts her when he is reminded that she has a husband and then he follows her to her house things like that yeah i don't feel like this is a good or fair representation of polyamory though i feel like michael is a character who makes a compelling point for it not the best she could have but like she is behaving ethically in her non-monogamous relationship i don't feel like julian ever behaves ethically at any point in the movie relationship wise or not. not no i totally agree like michael makes a lot of good points she makes strong arguments she follows through on them like she has the same code the whole movie I wish that I had seen more of her conversations with Boyd because I think that those would have been interesting. I would have loved to see more from Boyd because Boyd was kind of fun. Yeah, Boyd was kind of the king of polyamory. Like he was very chill until his wife almost got dead. And then he was like, actually, no, you'll never see my wife ever again. 
Oh my God. And he said it in that funky scarf that made it so hard to take him seriously. Listen, how else are you going to know that he's an important art man that does art if he doesn't wear the scarf? So true. You're right. Like Boyd was great at it. They had clearly had a conversation. I don't know what his personal life looked like outside of Michael, but presumably he was also exploring other relationships. And at first he supported and then he defended Michael. That's king shit right there. Yep. My man Boyd deserves the movie. Until he let the weird attacker back into his house, but that's fine. If Jada Pinkett Smith in this movie was trying to explore whether open relationships are ethical, I feel like the answer she arrived at is no, they are not. But maybe it is that they are not if everyone is not buying into it being an open relationship because Julian definitely was not. Clearly, Michael and Boyd were having a very successful, very ethical pull and that it was working for them. Yeah, I almost wonder if I think you could make the argument that like non-monogamy or polyamory or whatever doesn't work in conjunction with toxic masculinity. Mm. But I feel like you would really need to do more to identify that Julian is toxically masculine in that I feel like he should be punished for his behavior at the end, not have everything work out for him. I guess just going back to I would have liked a more decisive ending for the movie. You keep saying that this movie is not about marriage, and I agree with you, because I feel like if it were about marriage, it would have been from the perspective of Boyd or from the perspective of Michael. But instead, it's from this loser Julian's perspective. I really think that this is just my review of this movie was that it's Fifty Shades of Grey for Men with Mommy Issues because I really feel like it's just one extended sexual fantasy with moments of plot in it. Like so much of this felt like there was no point other than to like be sexy because literally every moment of it is shot with some level of like voyeurism. It's a movie that is attempting to be deeply erotic and sensual and yet is just whack for most of the time. The sex in this movie was so weird. Okay, so the first time that they have a sexual encounter, as we have said, is right after they go to see Frankenstein, or he follows her to Frankenstein more accurately, and then they go back to his apartment. She has him take pictures of her, and then she leaves. The weird part is when the next day she calls him up and picks him up in her car and then blindfolds him and handcuffs him and has her bestie slide through the divider wall in the limousine and start having sex with him while she videos and then when he finds out that it's her he gets angry and violent sends the best friend back the only time i ever felt like he was justified in his anger and violence by the way (laughs) yeah for sure because like that's sexual assault right i think we could agree yeah i it's definitely unwanted sexual behavior my problem with the sex actually it's not a problem i don't actually think that the sex in this movie is that weird I think that it is just really based in, like, power dynamics. Yeah. Which we're not usually used to in movies unless it's, like, a rape scenario or, like, a sexual assault scenario. So I feel like it was probably jarring for us as viewers to watch sex scenes that are, like, very clearly based in, like, dominating each other. Yeah. And not feel weird about it. I feel like this is exemplified in the second half of the car sex scene when he sends the friend back through the divider wall and then is like having a little fight with michael and then basically like pushes up her skirt and and they have sex and the divider wall rolls back down and the friend starts videoing and he sees and he looks into the camera and i think that he is okay with the videoing then when he was not earlier because in this situation he is in charge And so you're right, like all the sex is very power based where like Michael was trying to have power and then he took it from her and instead exerted his own. 
And it was so uncomfy to watch. First of all, because that possession looked super uncomfy and like she was definitely going to get a weird kink in her neck. Yeah, I agree with you, Elizabeth. The sex is not like overall that weird. It just felt weird to watch. And I feel like Michael is kind of coded as being this incredibly sexy character. Like she wears a lot of red. And when she's not wearing red, she's wearing black. Yeah. And as we know, red is the passion color, which is boring. boring. But whatever. There's a lot of red in this movie. Like they drink a lot of red wine and red lighting and shit. I think potentially like the sex in this movie is not sexy like it's just an extension of him being super violent then also like her kind of meeting him at that violent point and him realizing like at first I was like oh maybe he's gonna realize that like he is behaving in a violent manner and he's going to change his ways but then rather he's just like oh word this girl can kind of roll with me like we are gonna have good sex because we're both violent and I'm like no it's bad don't treat each other like that for real there was a lot about their relationship that I did not understand for example when it starts with the Frankenstein I was like is Frankenstein a symbol here like because I could never once figure out how Frankenstein fit into the themes of the movie or anything else because later Frankenstein then comes back like when he is blocking her, her number he watches Frankenstein like to feel something hilarious and didn't get it then either I wonder what people watch when I break up with them to feel something. Let us know in the comments below. Well, I think that Frankenstein, Frankenstein is one of those symbols that I don't really feel like is interesting. It's just about like the creation of man and like creation and destruction and how violent that process is. She also has that whole thing about like being your authentic self that I have never once read. I have never interpreted a Frankenstein story that way whatever i don't know i truly it could have been any movie and yet it was frankenstein and i don't think that was a bad choice but i don't think it was a good one either this movie was just so nothing to me even the music choices were super whack and i guess they were sort of masculine in that there was two times in the movie a cover of running up that hill by kate bush but sung by a man and i was like why would you masculinize this song not a good enough reason to use running up that hill Mm mm-mm also, there at one point during that montage when she is decorating his house and he is just working shirtless all day, that is set to the song The Richest Man in Babylon. And I was just like, again, a weirdly masculine music That was choice. kind of a banger, though. I'd never heard that song. And I was like, okay, all right, yeah. I'm jamming. That was probably the only part of the movie that I liked. I really, not only was this actually, sorry, this was so much more than a nothing movie to me. This was a movie that filled me with visceral hate for movies. Every time I watch a truly awful movie, I think about like the seven or eight really good movies <laughs> that did not get made in favor of this being made. I'm sure it was because I was tired. I'm sure it was because of any number of other things. But I cannot stress to you, the viewers at home, how much I viscerally hated this movie. Like, I will never get that time back. <laughs> it was a long movie, too. Yeah, it's like an hour and 47 minutes. Is it really just that short? Holy shit. It felt, yeah. It felt like four hours. It does feel very long, mostly because there are a lot of plots that never get resolved. Mm-hmm. However, Tessa, phenomenal. I yeah. thought that she really destroyed her one whole minute on screen. She was kind of a terrible receptionist. But yeah, I mean, but she the was the acting fine. was good and she looked yeah. excellent. She did. She looked really good. I can't give Tessa a very high rating because she was not on screen long enough to evaluate. So for that reason, I'll be giving her a 2.5 simply because I think if you have less than a minute of screen time and your name is not even your name, like waitress versus receptionist, 
there's not a lot to work with there. Fair. I think that's a fair rating. I'll also give her a 2.5 for the same reason. Conversely, I think that this movie overall is a one-star movie for me. Perhaps less than that, perhaps half a star. The reason being, I hated it. As everyone knows, I hated this movie. I gave it half a star. If I could give it zero stars, I would. I considered changing my review of Triangle of Sadness to be one star so that I could give this movie a lower score than Triangle of Sadness. But then I decided that this movie didn't make me as angry as Triangle of Sadness did. Hmm. So I'll keep them at the same rating of badness on Letterboxd. Yeah. So overall takeaways, uh, do not watch this movie. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. I just know that when Jada Pinkett Smith was cooking this one up and she was saying to Will, hey, will you produce this one for me? That she thought she was making a heater. And I just want everyone to know it's not true. Yeah, this is a miss for me. I thought that Jason Clark kind of did really well, but perhaps at the wrong thing. He was doing something. And I think that that character placed in different in a different context had the potential to be really something. I truly think I would give Jason Clark four and a half stars if we were rating him, but we're not. Whoa. I know. It's crazy. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to keep up with us while you are not listening to it, you can follow us on Instagram at where do I know them from. And you can also listen to our now like 50 episode backlog of previous podcasts, wherever podcasts are streaming. And if you like those podcasts, you can leave us a review on the podcast listening app of your choice. I have said podcast so many times by now, but only if it's five stars because we deserve all five of your stars. Just kidding. If you don't like it, that's fine too. All right. See everyone next week.